Father in heaven, we thank you that you do have all things in control. Sin has ravaged this world. It's ravaged humanity. It it kills. The wages of sin is death. It's what it does, and it does it very well. And whether that's killing off cells or killing off the person completely, sin and the effects of it are very, very effective. And Lord, your children, we who are but dust, we live in that reality. And whether that's us or it's a loved one or a friend, we watch death run its course and it's hard. But we have hope. We have an imaginable hope. Hope and an eternal life. Hope that our Lord Jesus Christ beat sin, Satan, and death and, and beat the poison of sin. And There is new life in Jesus Christ and there is eternal life to come. And that is our hope. But that hope, Lord, must motivate us how we care for those who suffer. Our shut-in ministry. Those dear ones who served here for years but then can be forgotten because they're in a home somewhere. They can't get here. Or somebody's been missing for a while and we haven't investigated, Lord, to see what's going on and to find they have cancer or they're terribly broken from something. Lord, give us sensitivity. Help us learn to weep when others weep so we can rejoice when they rejoice. Help us die to self when we need not give all the answers, but only a hug and a love and a prayer. So Lord, help us in this. Would you pray for the Anthus family? I miss my friend, Lord. And if you choose to take him home, we know that's your perfect will. But I pray for mercy. Lord, if you would do a miracle, we would worship you in his life and bring him back. But if you choose not, we, we don't doubt you, Lord. But we do struggle. And so I pray you would help the family and friends and so many involved with his ministry. We pray for the compassion of Congo, that wonderful ministry that is in a place that is so devastated by sin and the ugliness of the world. And yet there's four churches packed full of believers and orphanages and medical centers. And we ask that you would protect that ministry through all this. I pray for those in our church who are suffering. I pray you would give all of us that hear this sermon or hear this, this prayer right now, would give us a heart to find out who they are and how we can minister to them. Pastors can't do it all. And I do thank you for a church that regularly cares and feeds and loves on people. I pray we would just excel still more in that area. Lord, I pray you'd help me now as we look at Numbers 21. There's much to learn here. Much to see the glory of Christ in. 
I pray you would bring that forth in Jesus' name. Amen. Numbers chapter 20 was a sobering chapter. If you remember a few weeks ago, it starts with the death of Miriam, Moses' sister. He has to bury her. In the midst of that, he comes again to a very contentious nation. They grumble and complain because they don't have water and they want to run back to Egypt and to everything that Egypt has. And, they, and, and Moses, doubtless, he's still grieving with the loss of his sister. And then he's told how to deal with it. God doesn't bring judgment on them in this. He supplies their need. And they complain. They're clearly in sin. But instead of God judging them like we're going to see here in this next passage, he just gives them what they need. Undeservingly so, but he gives them. Moses makes a fatal mistake. In his frustration, we remember this, he not only strikes the rock twice, but then steps in front of the authority of God and says, shall I give you this water? And we know, as we studied last time, that he was, in a sense, robbing God of his glory, that he was going to give something that only God could give. And if that truth, when we watch it, roll out in religion of these worlds, it means that you somehow can find some way to save people other than through God, particularly through Christ. And so it was a very, very grave sin that Moses committed. And because of that, him and Aaron, who was probably in full agreement with him, uh, they are now banished from the promised land and will die at its border. At the end of the chapter, Aaron does die. Things are removed off him, all his ephod and the dressing of the high priest there in front of him while he's very much alive. It's set onto his son, Eliezer. I, I would imagine Aaron was grateful that the people would have someone who would intercede for them, be able to bring the sacrifices before God, bring that temporary reconciliation that the Old Testament sacrifices gave. I'm sure he was grateful for that. But the Bible just says, then he dies. It's quite a sobering passage. And then we come to 21. And 21 is interesting. It's sobering, and yet there's some, there's some good things starting to happen. And you go, well, Scott, isn't this about the snakes? Yes, it is. <laughs> but we begin to see some things that are starting to spark, things that are starting to show that this nation, and particularly this new generation, the other old generation has died off, this new generation is starting to believe in their God. And I want to start with that, point number one, small signs of faith from a new generation. Look at the first three verses of chapter 21 with me. When the Canaanite and King Arad, who lived in Negev, heard that Israel was coming by the way of Atharim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord heard the voice of, the, of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then they utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. Well, these opening verses are very significant, and there's some reasons why. One is... Israel somehow manages to get around Edom in this passage. Remember, they come up to Edom. They, they, Moses says, look, we'll pass through. We won't drink. We won't eat anything. We'll just stay on the king's highway. 
And Edom comes out with great force. And, and God says, don't fight them. And they've got to try to find a way around Edom. And, of course, that all goes back to Esau and the problems there. We talked about that. But now here they are in a very similar conflict. They're coming to a confrontation with this king, Arad. He's tied to the Canaanites. And, they're, and really, they're, they're back in the same spot where they began 40 years ago. They, they've actually now come full circle around the desert for 40 years. They're back almost identically in the spot where they rejected God's word. They believed the ten spies. They fell under judgment. Then they decide that they're going to go anyway and try to fight the Canaanites by themselves without the Ark of the Covenant, without Moses, and they get wiped out. Remember that? That's where they're at. But now all of the parents are dead. And you have the next generation here. And they're right back there. And you'll notice in first, verse 21 that there's a battle that goes on. In this preliminary battle, there's loss, right? You, look, you can see there's, they suffered loss. Members of the nation of Israel were taken captive. So, so they made a run at this thing, and it somehow failed. But, but, but this was typical, right? This is them trying to do things without God. But this time, they said, wait a minute. <laughs> We've done this before. And you'll notice that in... Verse 2, there's a significant change here. They make this vow to the Lord. Lord, if you will help us. In verse 3, the Lord hears the vow. Notice that. And so the name of the place is Hormah, which means God delivered them to their first Canaanite victory. There's going to be many, many Canaanite victories as they go into the land in, in the future. As we, as we eventually get to the book of Joshua and so forth, you'll see that. And, and, and they get this victory, and they completely destroy these people and their cities. And there seems to be a spark of faith here for the first time in this new generation. They, they went to God this time. And, and they sought his help. Now, clearly there's still grumblers among them, right? We're going to see that just in the next section here. And I think, I think what God's doing, this is my thoughts here, I think God is going, he's over the next few chapters, he's weeding out those who are not going to put faith because they are going to go into the land. And, and what I think what's so beautiful about this passage, from Numbers 21 to the death of Joshua, this nation walks with God in an extraordinary way. That means there's children being raised in here who never see the rebellion that nation of Israel does later. From Numbers 21 and on, this nation obeys God, and God blesses them. And he stamps out their enemies, one by one. And it's, it's the mark, and so they're still grumbling, and I think God's vetting those people out, and the snakes are coming, people are going to be bit, people are going to die, and, and they're going to learn their lesson because they are going to have to trust God because they're going to cross that Jordan after they take care of these two kings, and, and that's going to give them the first part of the lands that they'll have, two and a half, uh, uh, two and a half of the tribes are going to take those lands on, on this side of the Jordan, all that, I'll talk about that in a minute. And then they're going to go in, they're going to take care of Jer Jericho, they're going to stumble with Ai, with Achan, but then they're going to pick right back up, repent of that, and they're going to go. And they're going to go city by city, nation by nation, trouncing them. All the time, believing in God. And when they even think somebody does something wrong, like they put up a pillar at the end to mark something, right over there, you're not worshiping that, are you? Because we're going to kill you if you are. They're so, they're so incensed over any kind of idolatry that they, they even would kill, kill their own tribes. 
So from Numbers 21 through the life of the, into the death of Joshua, we see a nation that walks with God. And this is the beginning of it. And so one of the things that I, I just want to, there's one more thought of a little application here as I, as I was thinking through this passage is the nation recognized their sin. And they come back to God and said, oh God, we vow to you to do things your way. We'll destroy cities. We won't keep things. We won't keep people. We'll do it your way. God hears that. And I think what's important, I wrote in my notes this, that when we recognize our own sinfulness, that actually causes our faith in God to grow. Now, I want you to think about that. It's easy to recognize somebody else's sinfulness, but is when you recognize your own sinfulness, when you and I repent of that, your faith will grow. If you are always dismissing your sinfulness onto someone else, blame shifting it, always never dealing with it, your faith will not grow. You will not have the joy of the Lord. You will struggle. Your marriage will struggle. Everything else will struggle. I promise. And I think that's what this young nation is doing. They're beginning to recognize their sin. And listen, in the context of humility, God delights to answer our prayers and wants to show us his power. But it comes to the context of humility, humbling ourselves before a mighty God. Now we get to the snakes, and I, na- I call this one number two, look and live upon the cursed one. Look at verses four through nine with me. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go up around the land of Eden. They're, so they're trying to get around that problem, right? And the people began, uh, became impatient because of the journey And the people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Speaking of the manna. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people of Israel died. And so the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that we may... We may remove, that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. And then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a standard. And it came about that if the serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, What's very interesting about this passage is this is the last passage in a very long, long time that's recorded in the scriptures of the nations grumbling and murmuring, particularly about manna and, and, and the desires to go back to Egypt, right? This is, this is it. This is, this is their last time they do this, and this is deadly, and this is wrong and sinful. And, and they began to be impatient, the text says, right? And, and they refer to God's manna as miserable food, right? Uh, the Hebrew word for miserable there is uh, contemptible, uh, worthless, or wretched. Uh, that's harsh words for God's gracious provision in your life, right? You know, if you had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for work and you did, didn't like that, you, Lord, thanks for this miserable sandwich, <laughs> it's probably not good, right? So, so I'm, not, I'm not clearing them in any way. This is, 
the complaining of the mundane things in our life is is just as bad as complaining about anything else, right? We do that sometimes. We, we don't like the mundaneness of whatever God has given us. But interesting enough, on this occasion, their complaint does not lead to God's divine provision like in so many other times, right? They complained about not having meat. He flew in quail. They complained not having water. He brings it out of the rock. This time, their complaint does bring divine judgment. Look at verse 6 with me. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people. That's, I don't like anything about that verse. I don't like snakes, and, and I've had too many snake dreams where something's bit me. I've been on the ranch so many times where I've been struck out. I've been so many close calls with snakes. I've had them bite my boots. I've had all those things. This just sends chills up and down me. And then it says, so many people of Israel died. They died. First Corinthians chapter 10, remember this, where we're in that text, tells us these things were done so that we would learn from them. Lord, please help me learn from my sin. I don't need to be bit by a snake. <laughs> I think we should take that to heart. It's interesting, he calls them fiery snakes. Ever seen a fiery snake? There's a lot of mythical stuff that comes out in a lot of weird religions that they try to play with this. Uh, the Septuagint calls it killing snakes. That's how they translate it. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. But the root, root word is the root word we get for seraphim. And so that brings us to like Isaiah 6 where these angels who burn in the glory of the Lord before God. So it's probably more the idea that these poisonous snakes found people very easy to prey upon. And when they bite them, they have this burning sense of this poison that's in them. That's probably the idea there. Now, it's evident that these people were easy prey because the snakes just come and bite them. I'm thinking, I, I'm, you know, what would I do? Um, but whatever the case is, these, these things are miraculous in some sense, right? They all of a sudden just appear, um, and God has no problem doing that. Bread falls out of heaven every night, but on the Sabbath. I mean, he, he flies quail, and he has no problem creating to bring about his purposes, right? And then when the death toll starts to rise, all of a sudden, verse 7, notice that they start to confess their sins, which is good. I, I, be careful, because you look at, oh, now you confess your sins. No, it's good when people confess their sins, even because even of consequences. I, I, don't be afraid of that. In fact, listen, you and I often don't confess our sins till we feel the consequences. God uses consequences to bring us to our knees. So we see them pleading with Moses to intercede with them. They know Yahweh can stop this. They know Moses can go into the presence of Yahweh and stop what's going on. And, and, and amazing, verse 7, Moses agrees to do it. And he takes their plea before God. But notice in verse 8, God hears the plea of Moses and he answers him in a unique way. He says, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, on a pole. So, so Moses makes this fiery bronze serpent and he places it strategically where the people who have been bit can see this thing. And those who looked at this brazen, brazen reptile, right, this snake, as they looked upon it, they were healed and they lived. They lived. 
And thus you get the great statement in verses, at the end of verse 8 and 9, both, you get this kind of terminology, look and live. Look and live. That's why I named the sermon after that. Look and live. Now, this is an amazing set of events. And again, this is it. We do not see this grumbling again until after the death of Moses. This is somewhere, this, this was it. And they began to trust God, but it was a hard lesson. And, 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 and you know, God is divine and God is in control of all things. And I, I, I thought about this as I studied this. I said, Lord, were you directing snakes to the complainers? Or, because of the complainers, innocent people who weren't complaining died. Because that happens all the time, right? Sin, people sin and innocent people, that at least innocent in, the, in that sin, die because of their decisions. I don't know what happened, but I, I think I think I can we can probably say with reason that God was vetting out complaining out of his people in one way or another. And wow did he use quite the source to do it. Now it's interesting, this becomes both a solution and a problem. And like anything, Satan uses symbols to create false worship, false hope, uh you know mystical things come out of this the pagan nations around them we know the philistines had golden mice that they worshiped remember they put them with the ark and sent the ark back after the ark gave them all kinds of problems um and but the pagan nations worshiped all kinds of animals that they made into brazen images um for fertility for rain for victory over their enemies the egyptians wore a serpent on their on their on their Head, headdress, um, and, and we learned was over there. That was for them. That as they went into the darkness of life, that the serpent would go ahead of them and push away the evil servants, uh, evil spirits ahead of them. Uh, and that's why that's in their folklore and and so forth. And even people today around the world, and I've seen this, um, and especially in third world countries, they'll have a bracelet that is um, like a serpent. Uh, Bronze, people wear bronze because they think it helps them in some way. Um, and you'll see that still on there. And even our own medical community, when you look at the little sign of the medical thing that's on people's you know, chest, their pocket there, and, and their outfits, we still have that, right? And that's a sign of healing. It's a sign, and I think that's a good thing, but, but it's even made it into our medical community even today. But this bronze serpent became an idol to the nation. Now remember, they're going to walk with God and pursue him through the death of, of Joshua. But after that, big problems happen. I want to show you this. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Look at 2 Kings um, chapter 18 with me. I don't know how far I'm going to get in this tonight. But, um, but this is a chapter worth sitting down in for a minute. 2 Kings chapter 18, verse first four verses. Hezekiah becomes king here. The nation has had it's split, right? You have a southern kingdoms and you have northern kingdoms and you, Hosea is the king. You see in verse 1, now it came about in the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel. So that's the northern tribes. He's a bad king. The northern kings, they never had one good king. Not one king that the Bible says they, they sought the things of the Lord, right? 
here in the southern kingdom, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, becomes king. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Now look at this, verse 4. He removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars. They wouldn't worship in the temple. They'd go to high places where the pagans would worship. He cut down the astroths. Then look at this. He also broke in peace the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nashaton. You ever seen that before? This thing that was used for their healing that God put in their midst so they would look to it. We know it's pointing forward. I'm going to get to that in a second. You know I'm going to get to Christ in this, right? Um, uh, That now becomes a thing of worship within a nation. And Hezekiah is the first one to say, that's not happening anymore. And he breaks it. And God honors the ministry and the life of Hezekiah. Now, how does this all point to Christ? You got a serpent. You got a snake. You you got something that's been cursed in the garden hanging on a pole. How does that point to Christ? How are you going to get there, Scott? Well, let's let's think a little bit. Does Jesus talk about this? He does. John chapter 3, go there with me. Here we have old Nick. Nick has been following Jesus. He's, a San, he's one of the Sanhedrin, one of 70 men. He is uh, very powerful within the religious world and the political world of the nation of Israel. He is intrigued with Jesus. But he knows that the men that he serves with are not intrigued with him. In fact, they are growing more and more every day of wanting to kill him. But he comes to him at night. You know the scene, right? He's very confused about new birth, new life. He doesn't understand what Jesus talks about, this new life. He doesn't get that. So Jesus works down through that. I I don't have time to kind of work through that whole thing, but I want to drop down to verse 13. And Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now right there, he would have known he was using a reference to the book of Daniel. This was a term spoken of a coming Messiah, the Christ, he would have understood that. And so Jesus now is pointing Nicodemus, part of the fallen humanity, of how he's going to deal with the sin's poison that's killing him, and though he doesn't know it because he's, he's caught up in his religious activity. He thinks he's deserving of the kingdom of God because of his religious But Jesus is going to show him that he has the sin's poison ravaging through his body, and he's going to die. In fact, he's going to die in his sin. And so Jesus is saying, I'm the son of man. I'm the answer. I came to save people from the deadly poison of sin. That's what he's bringing them back to. God's wrath is upon you. The wages of sin is death. You're under judgment. And it's impossible, Nicodemus, for you to come on your own. You have to have new birth. Or you will fall under the righteous judgment of God. And end of chapter 3, verse 36 is such a great statement. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. That's true, right? That's all of us who we have 
placed our God-given faith in the Son and His finished work. Because that, we have been given eternal life. But, there's a great conjunction in that. He who does not obey the Son, isn't that interesting, changes verbs. Will not see life, and look what he will see, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is what is being communicated to Nicodemus. And this is our position, 1 Thessalonians 2.16 says, But wrath has come upon them to the utmost. People say, well, you know, maybe maybe because some people aren't as bad as others, hell won't be as bad for uh, all. <laughs> the Bible says the wrath of God has come upon them to the utmost. I don't know what that utmost looks like, but it ain't good. The fire's not quenched. Man, think about that. So I think Jesus is saying, listen, Nick, you're going to stand under the wrath of God unless you have new birth. Unless Jesus stands in your place and you turn to him, you look to him and live. This is what he's doing. And this is referring back to this great passage in Numbers. He's, he's going to use some terminology here in 14 and 15 that, that Nicodemus, a great uh, teacher and scholar of the Old Testament and, uh, and the history of Israel would have known this, right? So, so, so as he looks back, he's reminding him that God told Moses to make this brazen fiery serpent and to lift it up and the serpent was on a pole and, it, and, and, and look at what he's trying to teach Nicodemus is the serpent was some, not per, some preventative measure. This isn't a preventative measure. You are bitten. You are dying. If you don't look, you die. That's what he's trying to get across to Nick. It's forbidden people. And that's who Christ is for. So if you want to be religious and go to heaven someday, but you don't see yourself dying from sin, Christ ain't for you. Because you don't believe in his power, right? And so the poison was already in them. That's why he uses this story. It's already in them. They're already dying. And without this divine healing from God, these people die. This is his people. This is his nation. These are the ones he would have known. The snakes were in the camp because God sent the snakes into the camp to bite them. And the wrath of God had fallen on these people. Because of their sin and their rebellion. That's Ephesians 2. That's Romans 3, right? But the means God chooses to rescue his people from sin's curse is a picture of the curse itself. God says to the serpent in the garden, you are cursed and to the ground you will go. So God is doing something remarkable here through the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's showing that the rescuer of the people who has to rescue them from the sin of the curse of the sin is cursed himself. The Bible tells us in Numbers chapter 21, there's only one way to be delivered from the curse of this bitten, fiery snakes, this picture of sin is to look and to live and throughout the New Testament, Old Testament um, uh, Christ just illustrates himself by pointers and types and foreshadowing but listen when I first started studying this years and years ago I said I would have never dreamed that one of the pointers, one of the forward illustrations in types in the Old Testament of Jesus Christ would be a fiery serpent 
That's not my Lord. And it's hard to swallow that at times. But see, Jesus, I I think he loves Nicodemus and he knows he's drawing him to him. And so he's going to give him a very, very real illustration. Look at verse 14 with me. I'm the son of man, verse 13. I'm the promised one. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. So so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus is telling Nick, look, I'm the son of man. And and, and he's speaking, look, I'm going to be lifted up. He's speaking of his crucifixion. He's speaking of his burial. He's speaking of his resurrection. And if I'm lifted up and you believe in me, you won't die in your sins. But if you don't look to me, you will not live. Notice. He identifies himself as the son of man. That's, again, Daniel 7.13. He, he does this several times. He uses the word son of man several places. One is in, I don't have time to go there, but John 9 when he heals the blind man. Remember that? And, and he tells the blind man, do you believe in the son of man? He's asking him, right? He, goes, he doesn't know who healed him, and he comes back to him, and he meets him. He goes, do you believe in the Son of Man? Do you, do you believe in the Messiah? Do you believe in the Christ? Do you believe in the coming one is what he's saying to him. And he says, yes, I do, sir. I do believe him, and can you show him to me? And Jesus says, you see him, and it is he who is speaking to you. I am the one you are looking at. I am the one who restores you and gives you life. Look and live. So when Jesus speaks of the Son of Man to be lifted up throughout the scriptures here, he's talking about himself. He's talking about his own crucifixion. Now, he's also the source of the rescue here, right? Jesus is in place of the snake. He's, he's the source of the healing. He's the source of the rescue from the poison of, of sin, the wrath of God. He's the source of eternal life. And Moses was lifted, lifted up the snake, but Moses is not the rescuer, right? Christ is the one who can rescue. The Son of Man is on the cross. He's the one whom you lift up. It's interesting if you follow this, this teaching, and again, we could spend a lot of time on this, but in John chapter 8, he, Jesus I think in verse 28, somewhere around there, says that the Pharisees are the ones who are going to lift him up. And so he points to the fact that sinners will lift him up. But those sinners, he tells those sinners, particularly the Pharisees, you're going to die in your sins because the one that you're lifting up, you refuse to look at. And then he says, you will die in your sins. Jesus is also portrayed as the curse. It's fascinating. He's in place of the snake. Jesus is in the place of the snake, which is portrayed, listen, as evil and curse. And I think that's shocking. And the snake is evil. And the snakes are killing people. And the snake's on a pole. And, it, and it's a picture of God's curse on the people. And it's, it's pointing to Jesus. Look at that snake. This is Numbers chapter 21. Look at it. If you look at it, you will live. You go, well, well, how do we reconcile that? Well, think about verses. We know these very common verses. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And you want a better one than that? Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Listen to this. Having become the curse, what? For us. All this is pointing at Jesus Christ. And he's using it to save one of his children, Nicodemus. 
You look to what was condemned. You look to what was cursed. Christ was cursed on our behalf. He was condemned on our behalf. And if you don't look at him, you die in your sins. I mean, what a sermon. Him and Nick in the dark. Think about this. In becoming like the snake, Jesus is personifying our sin in a sense. He's embodying our sin. Remember, 1 Corinthians uh, 5.21 said that he who knew no sin came to be sin on our behalf. He became sin on our behalf. So he doesn't sin, but he becomes that which is full wrath of God, full judgment, everything that sin was, everything that God hates and, and, and stands against. He becomes that and takes that full wrath. It's amazing, isn't it? And in Jesus becoming sin and our curse, he takes ours away. <laughs> it's just astounding, isn't it? Here, here it is in, a, in an Old Testament story, the grumblers and complainers on their way to the promised land that God's given them. It's all pointing forward to something so miraculous and so great that you and I, however old you were, me, 50 years ago, looked to Jesus and he gave me new life. He forgave all my sins. He took my curse away. He put it on Jesus and Jesus took care of all of that. That's salvation, brothers and sisters. In this Old Testament text, way back in the early history of the nation, they don't even have land yet. Jesus is on full display, isn't he? It's all pointing forward to him. And notice that Jesus gives eternal life. Back in John 3, whoever, verse 15, whoever believes will in, in him have eternal life. You believe in him, you have eternal life. Believe, will, in him, little prepositional phrase right in the middle of that, in him, not in anything else, not in yourself, not in some, some relic that man loves to worship and have. Believe in Jesus and you have eternal life. And so he's saying to Nick, who's very confused at this point about new birth and can I climb back into my mother's womb and be born again. He's just completely uh, lost in all of that. And Jesus says the reason is because that's the work of the Spirit. And we don't know where the Spirit's blowing, but this is the work of the Spirit. And the Spirit certainly blows into Nicodemus' life. And he puts his life on the line for the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and many believe that Nicodemus came to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But this is what you say. Listen, this is what you, Jesus is telling us and showing us what we say to the lost. We tell the lost to look and live through Jesus. That's what we tell them. And yes, you have to explain that the poison is there. Well, I feel pretty good. You're going to die, friend. Man is once in this life and then judgment. Look and live. And, and Jesus gives us the answer. Teach people. And it really is that simple because the Spirit does the work. Teach them to look to Jesus. That he forgives them. That he becomes a curse for them. When our sin and God's wrath are taken away in Christ alone, it's, it's done totally for us and we're left with this eternal life. And look, if God is for you and he's taken 
the curse that is upon you and the wages of your sin, which is death, and he put it upon his son. And if God is for you and he does that for you, who can be against you, Romans 8 says. So that's how new birth happens. Believe in the finished work of Jesus. Look to him. Don't, don't do something. Don't add something. Don't take something away. Look to his finished work. That's where new birth comes. I think so much of this, John, John was just, by the time he writes the, uh, the, the gospel of John and then into his epistles, he's late. Most of the apostles are died off. And he, by this time, is so captured with Christ. And he starts out his whole dialogue and, you know, and begins to talk about we beheld the word. The word became flesh and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And he's just, he's overwhelmed with the grace and glory of Christ as he reveals the Godhead through Christ. And it, and it just, it spurs on everything he writes. As I taught through the book of John many years ago, I let that verse be my guideline through the rest of the entire book. See the glory and person of Christ, and John comes alive of who he is. And that's what he does for us. One more text. Go to John chapter 12. That passage is maybe a little more early on in his ministry. But right in the last public message he gave is found throughout chapter 12 of John. After this, he goes dark. He goes and goes with his disciples and works his way to the cross and all, all of that. He's actually already come into Israel, uh, into Jerusalem. And, uh, but some of his last things he says, look, we find this in John chapter 12, verse 31. He says, now judgment is upon this world and the ruler of this world will be cast out. And then he says this, verse 32. And I, clarify, nobody else, me, and I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Now, the all men means every tribe, tongue, every people, every, everybody, you know, people from Ormond Beach and California and all over, and Congo and from all over the world. He draws people. If you lift me up, they're going to look to me and they will live. Now, it's, it's such... Wonderful teaching here. It's, it's, it's physical, right? If you put me on that cross, I'm going to do what nobody else can do. You lift me up on that cross, I'm going to draw all people from every walk of life. I'm going to draw my entire elect to me. That's what I'm going to do. And if you lift me up, people will look and they will live. And listen, brothers and sisters, we've been doing that for 2,000 years. And the message doesn't change no matter how much they mess with it out there. It doesn't change how people get saved when you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. People look and they live. And they still get saved. And we have baptisms and we have people's personal testimonies. We have confession to this because people say, I got to stand in the waters of baptism and I got to tell you what Jesus did. I looked at him and I lived. And that's their testimony. And they tell you nuances of how God did it and we, and we just go, oh, praise the Lord. But what they're saying is we looked and lived. 
You know, Peter says it a little different. Peter says Jesus is the cornerstone. Uh, and I think that's fascinating. If you're a builder in here, you've ever put anything together. I mean, he is the plumb line. Everything is built off of him. You have no building. You have nothing that's going to stand through judgment, the winds and the trials of judgment and time and weather the storms of, of sin and life if it's not built on that cornerstone, right? First Corinthians 3 as well. So Peter says it this way. He says, for this is contained in the scriptures. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. <laughs> I, just, I love that phrase. Are you disappointed in Jesus? If you're a Christian, you just kind of almost laugh at that, right? Are you kidding me? I have nothing without him. All that awaits me is judgment for eternity without Christ. I am I'm not disappointed in Jesus. I'm disappointed in me at times. Disappointed in a forgiven person can live that way. Do you, do you agree with me? At times we, can, we sense that. But we're not disappointed in Jesus. He goes on to say, this is precious value. I'm in 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8. This is precious value. I'll say that's true. Then it is for you who believe, for those who, but for those who disbelieve, don't look and live. The stone which the builders rejected. Here's the perfect cornerstone to build everything on. They come along and say, no, we want to build on sandstone over here, something that will crumble. How about our own works? How about the seven steps of Trent? Let's build on that. Sorry if that offends somebody. Or, or, or my good efforts. Let's build on that. See, this is, this is how they reject the cornerstone. The stone, look at verse 9 says, the stone of stumbling, the rock of offense, that's what he becomes. And they stumble because of their disobedience to the word, and then it says this, and to this doom they were also appointed. Look and live. Build your life on the cornerstone of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I think I'll quit there. Um, there's so much more to be said. There's some fascinating things that they do. Um, this really turns them. They begin to obey God. And sometimes it takes trials. I, I know in my life there were certain things that God really awakened me. A believer. But God shook me to my core. There's certain things in my life that he shook me. Near-death stuff, injuries, different things. He does that to get us to follow him. And then when that happens... We can see the fruit and the joy, and he goes ahead of us, and he plows the road. doesn't mean what Israel went through wasn't easy. But, but he plows the road, and they, and they triumph, and they find God as an overcomer as we find Christ as an overcomer. And that is the hope that Israel starts to believe in. Now, again, it doesn't hard to look past Joshua, and you get to the book of what? Because it says the next generation didn't believe. Somewhere along the line, the love of God and obedience to him does not get passed on to the next generation. That's why we work so hard here with our children and parents 
and baby dedications and things like that because our goal is to pass this truth on. And I pray you're doing that in your home. Father, it is astounding to look at a passage that happened so long ago. So many years ago, this event took place. It's historical. It's a fact. And yet it still has such great significance. And Lord, when we look closely at this passage, we're the bitten ones. We're the ones who grumble and complain and are not satisfied with the works of God. And we're dying. The poison of sin is coursing through our bodies. And the clock is ticking. And then there's one who comes who is the curse for us. He is the cursed one. The one hung on a tree. Not cursed because of his sin. He is sinless. But because he bears our curse. Our sins are put on him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That we may have his righteousness. There was no other way. And so he's lifted up. And so many in this room looked at that lifted up one. For me, Lord, it was 50 years ago. You let me look and see for the very first time the one who was cursed on my behalf. Lord, there's testimony after testimony in this room of one who looked upon the cursed one and believed. Life-giving, new life-giving faith was granted and looked upon the one who bore our sins and we were saved. And so this event that takes place so many thousands years ago is so fresh in our mind and so beautiful to us because we see it in Jesus. He is the cursed one. And Lord, we thank you because he did what we could not do. So we praise you, Jesus, that you would take our curse, you would take our sin, and you would satisfy the wrath of God, and we would eternally be miraculously healed and be given eternal life for what you did. Lord, that's got to motivate us. It's got to motivate us through marriage, raising children. It's got to motivate us in our jobs, our stewardship of our money. Uh, it's got to motivate us in every way. There's nothing greater, there's nothing better than that, that you would save us by cursing your own son. Lord, help us remember this. It's, it's fresh in our minds now, but Lord, tomorrow as we awake, trials and tribulations await us. May we lean upon you. May the gospel guide and steer us, and we, may we preach it to ourselves every day. In Jesus' name.